From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Hackers trying to divert money the Department of Veterans Affairs paid to private sector health care providers had access to information about 46,000 veterans in a cyber breach. A payment processing system the VA Financial Services Center manages was the target of the breach. NextGov reports the hackers used social engineering techniques to trick users into giving away their access credentials. U.S. Strategic Command Commander Admiral Charles Richards says his command may never go back to its pre-COVID workflow. Richard calls the military very well postured to keep working as it is now indefinitely. Military Times reports one example Richard gives is that his personnel team will never be in the office at the same time again. The Office of Personnel Management will propose letting agencies make term or temporary appointments for up to 10 years for some projects. The new rule would apply to science, technology, engineering and math positions and jobs that work on time-limited projects. Federal News Network reports the limit now is four years, but agencies can ask OPM for extensions. The census has a big deadline looming to, to release data from this year's count. The compressed timeline, though, because of the pandemic, is raising the Bureau's risks. Chris Mim is Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You testified to Congress recently about this, and I joked with you a bit before we went on the air. We've shaved our gray beards about covering the census, but you've got 12 areas here as the clock is really ticking down toward the end of the month when census says it will stop collecting data. How are these different than the ones that we've looked at in previous censuses, Chris? A lot of them look the same to me. Yeah, a lot of them are the same, Francis. The, the challenge now is that they're the same, but almost on steroids, meaning that the, the, the combination of the needing to respond to the COVID-19 national emergency, weather events, both with the hurricanes and the wildfires now out west, um, and the late design change of the decision to move back the date to when apportionment counts will be provided um, has made what has already been a very challenging census even more so. And so getting a complete and accurate count will be very, very difficult for the Census Bureau. So the, the design change is one of the themes that I've seen in previous censuses. And as I said, before we went on the air, you've been doing these a lot, a lot longer than I've been covering them. But I recall the 2010 census, we had some of these same issues. We had the design changes at the last minute. We had the information technology challenges with mobile devices. At least this time, we don't have mobile devices that are completely different at right. the end than they were at the beginning. But why? what is your sense of how the Bureau keeps finding itself in these, with these same risks, census after census? Yeah, the, the big challenge, and, and as we were discussing before we got on the air, I, I started working on census issues for the 1990 census, actually the roll-up to the 1990 census. And so have a lot of years in, invested in, in making sure that we get a, a good and accurate census. The, the big challenge that they face this time around that differs from the past is that these late design changes have, have come really very, very late. And that is the decision made on August 3rd that to rather than uh, go forward with a legislative proposal that would uh, extend the dates in which apportionment counts and redistricting counts could be given to now revert back to what is the, the current statutory deadline at the end of uh, um, at the end of December. What that did is it cut a, a month off of field work 
It cut 60 days off of the processing. Um, all of this came late, obviously, in census year, and it's really compressed their timeframes. And, and that's the big challenge that they face now, on top of, again, all the COVID, all the you know weather-related events that they have, um, it's, it's an enormously difficult for them. What do we do at this point? What does census do? What can congressional overseers do? What can other agencies do, if anything, to help census meet these deadlines? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things that we can certainly do, and all of us. I mean, first and foremost is that for for those of us that have not filled out the census form, there is still time. So fill out your form, send it in, or even better, go on the internet and use the internet option. And that's one of the great success stories. The internet option did work this time, and tens of millions of people did that. Um, second, cooperate with the census taker if they come to your house and if you haven't filled out the form. Third is that the Census Bureau needs to make sure that it maintains hiring. In a number of places around the country where it has the highest workload that it's still of, of houses it needs to follow up upon, um, those are also the areas in where they're having the biggest staffing shortages. And so it's a, a, a real very difficult situation there. And then fourth, we have to make sure that the IT systems that are going to be used to actually process the census data, that the testing is done on those. Those were supposed to be the integration of the 12 systems um, that were that are being used for processing was supposed to be completed in June. It's now been kicked back to early October. They literally have no water in the schedule. It has to go right. And that's that's something that they very closely need to manage. And certainly my colleagues are looking at that very closely, my IT specialist colleagues. From a customer perspective, Chris, I can confirm your uh, findings about the internet option. I did that as soon as it came. Took me just moments to do. Worked exactly as it was supposed to work. The antithesis of what one thinks about among all the IT projects that we've heard about in government over the years. It worked magnificently. What difference does that make and what lessons can the census start taking now to try to apply to 2030? Because it's not long till they start to think about that. Yeah, it, it made a, a big difference, and, and I'm one of those people that uh, uh, goes by the philosophy about worry about everything, panic about nothing. And so, but I was worried about that, and and um, and we were looking at it uh, very closely. Um, I think that the big lesson learned on that is for the for the census going forward is to continue to use technology, um, but make sure that it's it's well tested. Make sure that you uh, you know use the the pretests that build up to the the actual decennial. Uh, make sure that you also have the load capacity that can take uh, census responses during peak periods, and that's something that they did. In fact, they they on a couple orders of magnitude above what they they actually needed. Um, they were able to they had the capability of taking in those census forms. Um, that that is, I think, when all is said and done, going to be one of the great success stories of, of of this census, and of what we hope in the end will will be an overall success story. But nevertheless, the the IT response option, I think, is you know really worked out for them. Um, where they have had other challenges in, on the IT side, and where we're we're concerned is again when things come in very late, um, and that's a story across all IT projects. Uh, that I know that you cover all the time, um, where things come in late, you don't have the opportunity for testing um, or full testing, that's where you run the enormous risks. Chris Mim, thanks very much for coming on the program. Appreciate your time. My, my great pleasure, sir. Thank you. Up next, four big moves to make at the Thrift Savings Plan straight ahead on Government Matters. The budget the board will need to get them all done. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board is considering a pitch for a big budget boost next year. The proposed budget would go up to $498.4 million. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs, Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, I'm looking at the slides that your board saw at the, uh, the monthly meeting, and there are quite a few acronyms here that I need you to walk me through. I know a few acronyms in the government. But there are some here that I didn't recognize. So let's start with RKSA uh, among your agency top priorities for fiscal 2021. What's that? That is a record keeping contract. We call what we call record keeping is all the information about our six million participants, and we are um, in the, we are very close to awarding that RKSA contract. Who has it now, and what what records do they keep? Is it just records about? a participant and what money she has and address and all that kind of stuff or is there more to it than that well there so currently the frtib serves as the integrator we have a contract for a record keeper we have call centers we have a service bureau that processes the forms and what we're doing is we're combining all of those into one contract which is what they do in the private sector for 401ks those are all unified. And as for the records, it's everything about a participant. So it's all of my um, information, you know, my personal information, name, uh, account number, and then it's all of the contributions, the earnings, the matching. That That's what we call the records. A uh, quick sidebar, you made a reference there to this is what uh, private sector financial plans do. That's a, a pretty heavy influence on what the Thrift Savings Plan does, doesn't it? I mean, that's a common theme among the conversations that you and I have had for, I don't know, however long we've been talking. And when did you succeed, Tom? Like six, Eight years six, ago. Oh, eight years ago. I'm, I'm asleep at the wheel. But that's a, a common theme among what the TSP is trying to do when it makes a number of different moves, right? Yeah, we, um, we don't... We look to see what the private sector is doing to make sure that we're offering the best possible services to our participants. In certain areas, we've been ahead of the game and in other areas, we've been behind the curve. And so we just keep an eye on it and it doesn't um, necessarily dictate what we're doing, but we certainly don't want to not offer services that we should be offering to participants. All right, more alphabet soup in the top priorities for fiscal 2021 in this budget. Implementation of FSM, MSS and AITS. All right, FSM is Financial Services Modernization. We have uh, legacy systems that we use right now, and we have to do manuals, some manual work to transfer information. Um, we are working with the Department of Interior, and they are going to be providing a suite of financial services uh, for financial software for us to use. And our CFO is thrilled that she will be able to get rid of the legacy systems and move into uh, current uh, software that will in large part or completely eliminate the manual processing. Is that the uh, National Business Center at Interior, the shared services provider? It is, yes. Um, and all of those things do what? Is that just the financial management internal yeah, it's functions budgeting, for the TSP? It's travel, it's uh, uh, contract writing, and there's one other that I'm blanking on, but there's four software packages that together make up 
the financial services system that we use. We have talked on a number of occasions about cybersecurity and operational resiliency, and it's not surprising to see that listed, Kim, as one of the big priorities in this budget that uh, that is uh, the board is considering. Exactly. I mean, as we move to the new record keeper, for example, the the FISMA requirements apply to whomever we contract with, right? So we have to make sure that they can meet those priorities, but we also have to meet the priorities for ourselves and anyone we're dealing with. And so MSS, which you mentioned, is managed security services. So again, we're going to a shared service provider. This one is the Department of Justice um, to help us with um, our SOC and uh, other other services to help protect our participants. Is the theory behind that, Kim, somebody else is al already knows how to do this and we don't need to learn how to do it if we just go and buy these services? Is that kind of what you're thinking? Is? Yeah, it, well, it's too, it, yes, and our current record keeper provides some of the SOC, and so as we're transitioning to a new record keeper, we would have either had to um, contract for that service separately, done it ourselves, or go to somebody who already has the service systems up and running, and we can transition over. Um, you have told me in the past that the audit findings and the remediation therein are not the most exciting things that the TSP board has to consider. That's the fourth priority. So what jumped out at me in all of this though, Kim, as I mentioned in the intro, approved budget for fiscal 20 is 385.6 million. The proposed budget for 21 is 498.4. And then I see an estimated for 22 of 479. That's a big increase. What's the potential impact on participants in the fees they pay? Well. Um, we expect that there will be a slight bump. And the reason, let me start by saying, the reason that jumps so high is because, as I said, we're looking to award the new RKSA contract um, before the end of December. And we will be in a transition period for 18 to 24 months, which means we're essentially running two record-keeping sy record systems for that period of time which is why the budget jumps for those two years. And we provided out years where uh, estimates that show that the budget will decline. Um, there will potentially be a slight bump for the, the expenses that participants pay, but given that the expenses are also a function of the size of the money that we're managing and the number of participants we have, it's hard to predict that at the moment. Kim Weaver, it's great to have you on as always. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. Up next, the clock ticks on the government's Huawei ban. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the price you'll pay if your company doesn't make it. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. contractors could get more time to comply with a rule that bans the use of certain Chinese telecommunications products. 
The current waiver goes until the end of the month. Gordon Bitko is Senior Vice President of Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. He's former Chief Information Officer at the FBI. Gordon, thanks for coming on the program. Is this extension likely to happen, do you think, and is it a good idea or a bad idea, in your view, for the companies that are trying to comply with this and keep doing business with the Pentagon? First, Francis, thanks for having me back again to talk about this. It's a critically important issue. There are real needs to protect national security, and of course, industry wants to do what it can to, to work with the government in that regard. I think the discussion of the extension is, is a reflection of the understanding of the complexity of the rule. Many agencies are right now trying to figure out exactly what it means. The rule left a lot uncertain, and a lot of individual agencies are, are figuring it out for themselves. And so there's a realization that that's a, that's a real challenge. If different agencies are handling this differently, that's going to really increase the cost, the complexity, the challenges for compliance. And, and so I think a lot of people are looking at that and saying an extension is necessary to really figure that out. But I also want to be clear, what we're talking about is not every agency has filed for waiver requests for this extension. And to date, individual agencies such as the Department of Defense have received it, but others have not and have not filed for that waiver. Uh, and, and so what that means, again, is there's going to be uncertainty unless in response to the, to the comments to the rule, which were just submitted yesterday, the, the FAR Council decides to enact a broader extension for everybody. Does that make sense at some point for somebody to say, we're, maybe it's the, at the OMB level or some other level, to say, we're going to do it this way, at least maybe we're going to do it this way for all the civilian agencies and let the Defense Department decide on its own or something like that? Would that give the vendor community a little bit more certainty? It sounds like the uncertainty is the biggest challenge that they have right now. Uh, that's absolutely right, Francis. I think the uncertainty is a real challenge for everybody, and that's true within government agencies as well. We've met with a number of agencies discussing how they're planning to roll this rule out, and they have all almost uniformly said to us, please make sure you submit comments highlighting these issues that you're having because we need clarity on them as well. So it's not just clarity for industry, it's clarity for contracting officers across government, and that covers a really wide range. Think about for a second, Francis, Right now, you've got firefighters for the Department of Interior who are out there, you know, in the West fighting fires. It's a critical need. Everybody understands that and supports it. From time to time, they have to buy supplies, and the way they do that is with a government credit card, right? They go to the local hardware store and they, and they buy equipment. Well, none of those companies that they're buying from, those local little stores, have gone through the process of, of representing that they do or don't use any of the covered equipment. Are firefighters going to be able to continue that critical need going forward or not? There's no clarity on that. You can add that on to all sorts of other mission essential functions. FEMA, uh, when they respond to, to hurricanes, they sometimes have to do similar things. Same challenge exists for them. So I think, I think this need for clarity exists across the whole of government. What argument is there, if any, for different agencies to do it differently? Is there a pro to that approach? sounds to me so far like it's all cons and it's generating that lack of clarity that we just discussed, but it's possible there are reasons that it makes sense to continue that effort. What we would really like to see, Francis, is a, is a recognition that the risk is different, right? The, the, the risk of different types of, of exposure, different types of data that different agencies have, that contractor uh, equipment or services might have access to varies depending on are you supporting the Department of Defense or the intelligence community. Or are you supporting FEMA or the Department of the Interior or the Department of Education? You know, that's a very wide range. 
and and the reality is is that this rule and and section 89 is so is so stringent in its interpretation it's not allowing for any flexibility in thinking about the risk what we'd really like to see is that approach and and that cuts uh not just to 889 francis but to the, there's a lot of other as we've talked in the past policy in the same space for example the fcc right now is going through rip and replace that's something that hasn't been it's the, the law has been passed but the money has not yet been appropriated and they just came back with an estimate the other day that that's going to be two billion dollars and, and that's just for the the local little telecoms that have pro provided responses to them and my understanding is many more have not what's the risk to all of those and what's the cost to us as americans in the loss of innovation when all these companies are having to go back and solve this problem for themselves so so we would really like to see that see clarity around a risk-focused approach that understands that that these are complex issues that the the need to protect national security is real but at the same time there's a desire to encourage innovation and competition in the marketplace and, and for government uh, 30 seconds left gordon what comes next what will you watch i think in the immediate term it's going to be to see how does the far council respond to the comments that came back on 889 but then immediately following that, the Secure Technologies Act rule was just published as well. It's very much in the same space. It creates the Federal Acquisition Security Council to do a lot of the risk analysis that I was just talking about. And what we'd really like to see is some overall heuristic that takes into account the needs of, of all of these policies and gives consistent guidance. Gordon Bitko, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Thanks again, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.